0: Welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm your host, Emma Thomas, and I'm delighted to welcome back friend of the podcast, Dr. Katie Barber, who has been on twice before, wants to give us a great overview of all things to do with testosterone and previously to that sort of busting some myths around menopause. But I really wanted to chat to Katie about the recent issue of the NICE draft guidelines, which have caused, I think it's fair to say, quite a lot of media interest uh, and quite a lot of discussion, some of it fairly heated. So Katie, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and and for offering to sort of have a a short chat with us just to unpack some of this. Um, It's lovely to have you back. Thanks
1: for having me on Emma, it's good to be here.
0: So I thought it might be worth very, very briefly saying before we kind of get into any discussion, you know, what are the NICE guidelines in terms of menopause? Why are they important? Okay, so it's really important as healthcare professionals that we... Advise
1: and treat patients in an evidence based way. So, you know, if there's a treatment or a recommendation about a therapy or a dose of a drug, that this has been adequately studied and there's sufficient evidence to support this as a good thing for patients. Now, that could be a blood pressure treatment, it could be a surgical procedure over another surgical procedure, or in, when we're looking at menopause the role of HRT or non-hormonal therapies to control symptoms. And it looks not just as efficacy and benefit, but it looks at risk and harm. And the idea of NICE guidance is that it's really, it's providing recommendations that are evidence-based, Involving Mm. healthcare professionals, independent people representing different elements of the patient uh, from all walks of life. Um, And that conditions and diseases have a clear structure of how you should approach that problem to deliver evidence-based medicine in a safe, effective way. That ultimately, the benefits for that patient outweigh any harm. And that's what the principles of NICE
0: guidance are. So these particular ones so it's a draft that's come out and it hasn't changed in, is it eight years? Yeah, so 2015 was the last one, correct? You were saying off air, you, you've read through, it's a very, very kind of comprehensive document in and of itself. And, and there's a whole load of addenda there with, with sort of the the research and the evidence behind the actual guidelines. And obviously, there are certain things that will have changed since the the sort of the previous ones. But the thing that seem, people seem to have latched onto is around CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Was that mentioned at all in the previous version?
1: Yes, it was, and I think this is where the media have perhaps picked up something that they felt wasn't in the previous guidance and, and run with it when actually it was cbt has been around for a long time specifically for managing menopausal symptoms i suppose now's a good moment for me to explain what we're talking about with cbt or cognitive mm. behavioral therapy so this is a non-prescribed pharma- non-pharmaceutical treatment it's all looking at the emotional and behavioral responses we have to symptoms and uh, how our psychological and physical uh, responses can be affected by how we experience symptoms and how we think about those symptoms. For example, I'm going to be very simplistic here. If we're having a hot flush, it might make us feel quite anxious if we're sat in a situation where we may be giving a talk at work or sat in an important meeting. And that can create anxiety, which then can create physical symptoms of everybody can see my face getting red, everyone knows I'm having a hot flush, even if nobody can see or know that you're going through that. That then often aggravates that symptom because we have a bit of an adrenaline rush that we think everybody can notice we're flushing and sweating, and it can make the symptom far worse. So that's often a natural response to a physical symptom. But our behavioural and emotional responses can add to that physical symptom to make it more florid or more concerning. We get into a bit of a vicious cycle. So cognitive behavioural therapy is about looking at those responses that we have, that all of us have to a different degree, and aiming to manage them. It doesn't mean that the physical symptom will be completely eliminated, but perhaps we can control those symptoms more effectively, diminish the severity of the symptoms, and actually it gives us strategies to overcome those symptoms such that they don't become intrusive on life. Now, I've given a really simplistic explanation about a hot Mm. flush, but the same would apply to sleep disturbance or low mood, you know, acute anxiety episodes or feeling very, very low. Now, whilst we're very, very knowledgeable about the role of cognitive behavioral therapy. There's been some excellent work by some quite eminent psychologists looking at this area. And it has been in the the NICE guidance previously for menopause. It may not be the best treatment for many women who could take a prescribed treatment, whether that's hormonal or non-hormonal. But I think the key here is really to say that this is an excellent therapy choice I think this is the thing it's choice what what are we offering women what different options do they have in terms of how they manage their menopause it's not saying every woman should be given CBT rather than HRT which I think is perhaps what's been misconstrued slightly I think it's more Mm. about saying this
0: is a therapy or even saying that they've got sort of equal weighting Completely. Sorry to interrupt. It, but even yeah. even sort of that that sort of uh, people intimating that that people would be offered CBT before HRT. And that's not
1: that's not what it's saying. It's it's saying we should consider CBT. And the, the word consider is used. Consider it as an option. It's not a routine treatment for all. It But it has the benefit for some women of not increasing the risk of breast cancer recurrence, for example, whereas HRT may in that patient with a history of breast cancer. It doesn't interact with medication because it's a psychological therapy rather than a prescribed treatment. So it's looking at when it could be used. And I would say there's certainly a place for cognitive behavioral therapy in women who choose not to, or are advised not to take hormone replacement therapy, but also it could be used alongside other treatment options like hormone replacement therapy. And a a classic example is, you know, midlife mood disturbance may have a hormonal component for some women, But actually, for some women, it may have a hormonal element and other non-hormonal elements. And that two-pronged approach with saying, right, let's get your menopause optimized in terms of whatever we're going to do in terms of prescribed treatment, hormonal, non-hormonal. But is there another element that you would benefit from having some cognitive behavioral therapy or other forms of non prescribed treatment. So CBT is one aspect, but there's lots of other different aspects we could talk about.
0: And I don't think anyone for a minute is suggesting that CBT is going to fix, you know, osteoporosis or a certain kind of collection of physical symptoms.
1: And I think the, the main thing with, with it with menopause management, and I think this is really one of the key points is that, and this is echoed in the guidance is that menopause care, it, it should be individualised. Tailored and specific to the patient. No two women are the same, or no two people assigned female at birth are the same. And I think we'll come on to that in a minute in that their experience of menopause will be different. The symptoms they experience, the severity, the degree to which they affect quality of life is so, so individual. And, you know, even something going back to hot flushes as a simple symptom, for one woman, they may be the least of that, that person's concerns. And it may be that it's more the vaginal symptoms or the urinary symptoms that bother that person. And the hot flushes are tolerable. But for another woman, the hot flushes are not tolerable and disturb sleep and affect function and quality of life. And it's about not just what symptoms have you got, but how do they impact you and what can we do to approach them in a way that manages them best for
0: that individual. And in all of that sort of noise and focus around the sort of CBT element, are there some really important things that that have been sort of missed, either sort of positive or, or otherwise, that are contained in, in the new draft?
1: yeah i think I think actually if you read further down there's there's perhaps some evidence that maybe has not been considered, maybe because of the type of evidence it is or the 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 risk stratification that's been included and i and I think it would be it would be naive to say it's all about cbt because it isn't there's there's lots of other important information that i think needs commenting on um and and perhaps some further challenges in terms of what's being put out there particularly in light of things like cardiovascular disease risk which you know we know there's a significant uh, amount of evidence supporting the benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that HRT should be used as primary prevention for, for cardiovascular mm. disease. And I think I would be very mindful of making sure that women are aware that that if they've chosen not to have HRT, and they're optimizing everything in their lifestyle risk, that's okay. You know, it's not about HRT for everybody, and that you should feel like you've missed out if you haven't had it. There's lots of things that contribute to long-term health risks, whether that's stroke, dementia, cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, diabetes and I think actually in midlife we've got a great chance to optimise those long-term health risks with lifestyle optimization. and I think that should form a key part of any discussion with any menopausal patient before we even think about prescribed treatment.
0: And there's all, there's been a lot of uh, focus as well on the extent to which the guidelines talk about risk and I think there's almost this sort of intimation that it's it's quite negative about hrt and the risks associated with hrt. Yeah,
1: I agree and I, and I think that's where the, the 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 it's a draft for a reason. It's inviting mm. comments to challenge the statements being put out. So, um, you know, we'll we'll wait and see what the 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 final outcome is. Um, and I would encourage people to comment and challenge things that they perhaps don't agree with and it's really important if you're thinking about Commenting and challenge that you back up those comments with evidence, you know if there's something you know that has not been included or reviewed, you need to include that because the the whole reason we have these as drafts is to welcome and invite comments so that where we disagree perhaps with certain things that are put out there, it can be challenged and reviewed. I think it does look very negative at the first glance, and mm. it's really about getting into the nitty gritty of what's contained. And perhaps some of the positivity of the impact of hormone replacement therapy has been lost. Um, And I would be very conscious that patients understand that it is a balance of benefit versus risks. And the benefits are significant for a large proportion of patients in terms of quality of life. And also particularly for younger women, women with menopause before 40, That's a different entity where we're wanting to encourage that cohort to have hormone replacement therapy. And I'd be very concerned if those younger cohorts with premature ovarian insufficiency felt that the guidance was suggesting HRT was a bad thing for them because they are a different subspecialist group Mm -hmm. where it's certainly advocated to replace the oestrogen that they're not naturally producing.
0: And you've talked uh, briefly off air as well about some of the changes around uh, individuals that are assigned female at birth that are covered now in the guidelines that weren't before. Is that right?
1: Mm, and I think the problem is we have not very much data about these groups specifically receiving hormone replacement therapy. When, when I talk about hormone replacement therapy, I mean treating menopause, whereas mm. not, not gender affirming hormone therapy. So I think the, the difficulty is, is, is understanding how that population perhaps react to menopause hormone therapy when they're already on gender affirming ther- therapy that interacts with their hormonal levels anyway because it's just it's it's just new it's a new area for research and actually it's important that these populations are included in the guidance but perhaps that is certainly an area to recognize that we need more data on specifically about the experience of that population and also about how menopause hormone therapy can interact with other drugs or affect other drugs or it affect their experience in management of the menopause.
0: And is there anything else uh, in, in the guidelines that you think is of noteworthy, different, um, sort of worth flagging?
1: So it's interesting, there was a um, the bit about breast cancer, particularly in younger women using HRT, women between 40 and 45, and um, a lot of the data was looking at sort of observational data, which is, is is, is you know, not as gold standard as your randomised controlled uh, trial data. Um, so that's, that's one area that I'd be interested to know a little bit more about. Um, the other thing I think that's really been highlighted is looking at health outcomes for ethnic minority groups. Uh, women of colour, perhaps there aren't uh, sufficient data to support specific risks. And we know those populations have uh, different risks of cardiovascular disease, stroke, thrombosis. Um, So I think we have to have specific data for those populations. And I think this is where it's really important when we look at ethnic diversity in menopause, and looking at the menopause experience when we look at different populations and the age at which women may become menopausal, the degree of symptoms, the cultural aspects, the acceptance of menopause, the differing views in their societies is, is really important to take into consideration. So if a positive thing to be achieved from this guidance is actually look we've got some key topics for research for populations that haven't been so effectively studied and we don't have specific data, then I would welcome that. Um, but it's difficult to then often extrapolate the data for a, a white Caucasian population to those populations of ethnic minority when we simply don't have the the information specific to that group.
0: And so if that kind of need for further research is identified as a part of that consultation process. Where does that then go? How does that get sort of taken up?
1: I suppose it's a good starting point and a springboard to encourage funding of these important trials, which, you know, it, it, there's lots of areas of women's health that I think need to be further evaluated. And and perhaps where there's lack of data to support care in an evidence based way, it, it perhaps provide a bit more ammunition to support those trials being undertaken. Um, maybe I'm um, I'm very blue sky thinking here, and maybe a bit of wishful thinking in some ways. But but I think uh, you know I think there's room for improvement always with with women's health and specifically with menopause. And, and I'm very mindful that we don't almost turn the clock back to women being scared or reluctant to go and ask for help with their menopause because they've read something online that says they're going to be offered a psychological therapy when in their mind they feel they want to try something along the lines of hormonal replacement therapy and i think that that's one of the messages i would get out there this is not saying everyone should have cbt mm-hmm. it's about encouraging it to be considered as an option but that actually it's really important you still go back to basics lifestyle prescribed and non-prescribed treatment hormonal and non-hormonal treatment and even if i have a woman in my clinic that comes in that's adamant she wants menopause hormone replacement therapy I'm going to talk about lifestyle optimization and all the options with her and then she can make an informed decision and that is the key thing here which we should be doing in all walks of life across medicine is Mm. what are your options what's best for you and let you have that supported discussion with a healthcare professional that can base their decision making and advice on evidence is the key point
0: yeah, I think one of the other sort of criticisms as well that's worth just touching on is the the sort of the actual, the availability of CBT, even if somebody did think that it might be beneficial for them and, and did want to go down that route, I think the waiting times are extremely long.
1: They are, and I think you know if this if this is one way of of sort of highlighting how it could be used as a therapeutic option to then allow it to be developed, whether it's group sessions whether it's self help online in person virtual, this is a key area for development. But it's not the only area for development when we talk about menopause and menopause treatment options. It's one of several. Um, You know, we've got newer products uh, hoping to be launched in the near future, which can really then support particularly those who maybe can't or choose not to take HRT. Um, And again, it's all about finding the evidence and accessing the treatment and funding. So it's a, there's lots of different factors involved, Emma. It's not just a an a study that says it's a good thing it's about how we get that into motion and i think if if it, if it can help support those areas then it's a good thing but i would really like to see the benefits of hrt being more clearly outlined as well as the risks mm.
0: yeah well thank you so much for helping us unpack some of that i think it it's it's great to have that that kind of balance and and nuance and understand that um Sometimes the, the headlines aren't, aren't always, don't, don't give us that kind of that nuance and, and the balance. So thank you again. It's always lovely to see you and hear from you. So yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Emma.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.